So Luke chapter 22, we're going to read the best part of that chapter. So I want to talk to you about the cup in the garden. The substance of the cross. So if you've got your Bible open, I want you to follow with me as I'm going to go through this passage. Are you ready for the word? It says in Luke chapter 22, verse 1, Now the feast of unleavened bread draw near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. So we see here immediately the chief priests and the scribes. It's really interesting that we do not see the Pharisees. You remember that group called the Pharisees? It is them always who came to Jesus and asked him all these tricky questions. But once it came to this part, at the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, we only read about the chief priests and the scribes. One of the other Gospels says, and the elders. And this makes up for the whole Sanhedrin. The whole Jewish Sanhedrin came together. And it says there, they sought to kill how they might kill him. And this happened at the place of Caiaphas, the chief priest. And instead of being in the temple and getting ready for this feast, Caiaphas had the scribes with him, he had the elders with him, and now they were planning three things. They planned to put Jesus to death, they planned to do it secretly, and they planned to do it at this feast. And it says there, they did all of these things. Why? Because they feared the people. Fear can do a lot of things in people. Fear can make you do things you don't want to do. But here, instead of fearing God, they feared what? The people. And we see this happen so often through the Bible, where some of these leaders come and they fear the people more than God. They listen more to the voice of people than the voice of God. Here, they have the Messiah with them. They have God with us. But instead of listening to His voice, they fear the people more. Why did they fear the people? Because they set themselves so up, they received all the benefits of their religion, and now they were afraid that this man, Jesus, is going to take it all away. Because He had a multitude of people following Him. And they were fearful for this. Now instead of bowing to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, they now sought to kill him. And we continue in verse 3, when he says, Then Satan entered Judas, surname Iscariot, who was numbered amongst the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains, how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. I'll tell you one thing, it is really bad if somebody really close to you turns his back on you. You see, this is what I've experienced in my life. I can take it when the world turns their back on me. But if somebody very close to you turns his back on you, that hurts really deep. And here we find somebody like Judas Iscariot, who was one of them. 
He was numbered amongst the twelve, and it says that Satan entered him, and from that point onwards, he conferred with the chief priest how he could betray our Lord Jesus Christ. So he made a promise. I just wonder, and this is for money, they were going to pay him off. And we know how much that money is. I oftentimes look today at people and I, and I think to myself, how much do they sell Jesus out for? Is it for a little bit of pleasure that people just turn their back on Jesus and they make this promise to, to turn away and to sell Him out? This is what Judas did, isn't it? He sold Him out. He wasted some money on one side and he looked at the loyalty towards his Christ and he says, this weighs more to me than the other. Dear friend, you and I need to be careful not to allow Satan to have part in our lives. Verse 7, he says, Then came the day of the unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered a city, this city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. Now you might say, wait a minute Jesus, this is a really difficult thing to do. You send these men in to the city to go and prepare a place and when you walk in, you just need to look for a man carrying a pitcher of water. I mean, this is a big city. Just imagine for yourself, I say, I want you to go and prepare a place for us in the city of Melbourne. And I say, Richard, you and Paul go ahead. And if you see a man walking with a cell phone there, follow that man, and where he's going, that's where we're going to eat. Is that difficult or what? How many people have got cell phones? All of them have got cell phones. You're going to walk in there and say, it is impossible to do. The first street you're going to come in, every single person has got a cell phone on them. And, you know, we might look at Jesus here and go, how... Do you make it so difficult? But it was not so. You see, he says when you see a man who is carrying a pitcher of water. For in those times, men didn't carry pitchers of water. It was the woman who did that. You remember in uh, John chapter 4, the lady at the well. What did she go out to do at the well? She carried water words. She was going to take a pitcher and get water out of the well. It was one of the tasks of the woman of the day, is to carry the pitchers. You go back to the Old Testament. You remember who was at the wells always carrying the water out of the wells? It was the woman. No, no. Jesus was very clear. And when these men walked into the city, it was so clear. It stood out like a sore thumb, they say. It was a man carrying a pitcher, not a woman. He would have walked in. These men would have walked in. And they would have seen all the women carrying pitchers. But there was a man carrying it. And that's the one to follow. You see, this is the thing. When Christ directs you, He gives you clear and precise direction. The only thing you need to do is to listen to Him and to obey. 
and to follow. That's all you need to do. It stands out like this, and I love it when Christ do this. He says, where do you want to prepare this? And he goes right there where you see this man with the pitcher. Now follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you. Now, when I read that, I recognize that they must have known Jesus. Not only did this man on that day decide, he was walking into the will of God, but they knew the teacher. And they took him up into a large furnished upper room and there they made ready. Don't you just love it when God directs footsteps? It says in the book of Psalm, He directs our footsteps. In verse 13 he says, So they went and found it just as He said to them. Oh, I love this passage. You see, if you follow Christ, if you do what He says, you will find exactly the same that He tells you. He will die. He will not only direct your footsteps, but He will prepare the way for you. His word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Isn't that what the psalm says? And when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You see those words there? They came together, not for the first time. But when they came together this time, he says, I have desired to eat this with you before I suffer. In this meal now, he's going to prepare them. He's already started telling them that he's going to die. But now it's in the final night. He's going to sit down with them and he prepares them that he's going to die. He's going to suffer. For I say to you in verse 16, I will no longer eat until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Have you noticed how many cups there are? You know, people get so tied up with these cups. This is not the first cup. This is not the sacrificial cup or the last one. In fact, at these meals there were four cups. Did you know that? They had cups and then they broke. It was all part of the ritual which they did. The first, I've got no problem with the first cup because when he took the first cup and he gave thanks for it, he says, take this and divide it amongst yourself. They were all drinking out of the cup. Then he took the bread, and this is where we get our communion, our institution of the supper. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after that, after that he took the cup of the new covenant. You see, the first cup is not the cup of the covenant, but this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And they had to sit and wait until he break the bread. I've explained it once before in our house. There's a certain way when we come together and we eat dinner. And you might visit us and we might prepare the food. 
and we might all get ready and the table is set and Leonie might put all the food out and you just don't come in and start digging in and start eating the food. No. We get together and we say a prayer. And after prayer, everybody knows now we can start eat the food. It was the same in their day. They would pray over the first cup and give it out and then they will break the bread. Once the bread is broken, everybody knew that now they can start to eat. It's the same that happened in the book of Acts. You see, this is not just things that happen by chance. It is instituted by God. We don't just live our lives as animals. We are created beings in the image of God. And we need to rejoice in that. And now he says, do this in remembrance of me. And we do this in remembrance of him. So we follow now in verse 21. He says, but behold... The hand of my betrayer is with me on the table and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. I find this fascinating how Jesus warns. He warns Judas about what's going to happen. Then they began to question amongst themselves which of them it was to do this thing. And verse 24, now there was also a dispute amongst them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Isn't that just man? Oh, I'm better than you. Who's, who's the best here? You know, he loves me. Peter's sitting there, you know, I'm Peter. And the other one is, I'm John. And I'm this and I'm that. They, you know, it's as if they just put it aside what he just said, that he's going to be betrayed and it's one of them. And they start quarreling about who's the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentile exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is the greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table, yet I am among you as the one who serves. Better they had thought what, what Paul had written in uh, Philippians chapter 2. You remember that passage when he said, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and becoming in the likeness of men. You see, we live in a society where we want to be served, isn't it? Somebody can just serve me. It's all about me, myself and I, isn't it? And I walk in lust. You know what the definition for lust is? It is to satisfy self at the expense of others. Whereas Jesus Christ come at, at this time and he offers himself for us the definition for love, on the other hand, is to satisfy others at the expense of self. And here we see that. They are fighting so frantically around themselves to be the greatest. Oh, to be that one that everybody's going to read about in the newspapers tomorrow. Oh, to be the hero. We all want to be heroes, don't we? And Jesus says, this hero is different. This hero lays down his life. He serves. He kneels down. He washed their feet before this happened. 
like a servant, and yet, yet they try to be the greatest. And in verse 28 he says, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, as we're going to continue during the year, you'll find a lot of these things come out. But I love it when he starts giving us a glimpse of the kingdom to come. Can you see that? It's in your Bible. It's right there. Oh, you want to make a life here on this earth? You know what the Bible says is going to happen to this earth? Do you know that? Come on, you know what's going to happen. It's going to burn. All your efforts is going to burn. Everything you try to establish is going to burn. But here we find him talking about his kingdom. This should get you excited. He says, I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me. You know what he's telling them? He says, I'm going to bring you into my kingdom. Don't look at the trials now. Look what is ahead. But we live in time, don't we? We see the things that hurt us right here and we try to make a name for ourselves here. He says that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. All that I can eat at his table in his kingdom. Is that your desire this morning? Is that what really excites you? To eat and drink at his table and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Wow! You know what? I can spend some time there. And we will in future talk about these things. And the Lord said, this is, this is to me a climax. This is to me great words. I can imagine myself sitting there and He says these things and I go, wow! That just blows my mind. And then He turns to Simon and He says, Simon, Simon, listen to this. It's a contrast. He says, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan asks for you that he may sift you as wheat. Do you know what wheat is? You take wheat and you, you, you do that and you, you blow and all, all the chaff goes off and the wheat stays behind. You see, he says to Simon, he's asked to do this with you, to crush you. You know what? It's not only Simon, it's you and me. Even to this day, he's still asking for you and for me that he may sift us. You need to see the attack of Satan behind that. But I like this word, but. You see that word, but there? You know, I'm into words. I like to take words and see the meaning of that. The word, but, means a sharp contrast. He says, look, he asked for you to sift you, but, sharp contrast, I have prayed for you. There's a few other places that he says, I will pray the Father. He says it in John chapter 14 as well. I will pray the Father. And what is that passage there? Verse 16. That he sent you another comforter, another helper. And here he says, but I've prayed for you. What did he pray for? He prayed for that helper to come and help us. Dear friend, you and I have got the Holy Spirit with us. He says, what did you pray for? That your faith should not fail. What builds faith? The Word. 
the preaching of the word. Strengthened through the Holy Spirit. That builds faith. He says, I pray that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me. Look at this. This is fantastic. You know, I read this stuff and I get so excited. And please, I can't contain myself sometimes. But listen to this. He's already said to him, when you return to me, remember that he's going to deny Christ. And he's going to tell it to him. He says, when the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. But, you know, he says, you are going to return to me. He knows it all in advance and he prepares him. But do you think Peter listened to that? No. Because we are so in our circumstances, dear friends. And our circumstances blurs our vision to see faith. Can I say that again? I am going to say it again. Our circumstances blurs our vision so that we can't see see through eyes of faith. He says it right there. He says, when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Oh, big mouth. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you without money, knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, nothing. Remember, he did send them out. He said, don't take anything with them. But now he's going to tell them, he says, but now he who has money back, let him take it. Likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written, must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they say, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. What is Jesus saying? He's preparing them for his departure. He says, when I was with you, you didn't have to take anything with you. No money, no knapsack, nothing, no sword. I'm your protection. He says, but I'm going to go away. Now you take your stuff. Take your knapsack. Take your money. Take your sword. There's two. Yes, it's enough. But you know, dear friends, the great news here is he is going to send his Holy Spirit to be in them. Verse 39. Are you enjoying the word of the Lord? Sometimes it's just good to read through it. You know what I find fascinating when I talk to people? A lot of people have never read this passage. They've only heard it preached. And when you hear it preached, it's just bits and pieces. Let me put it in context to you. He says in verse 39, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives. Now I like this part because we're going to concentrate for a few more minutes on this part. He went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. It's a short prayer, but it's such a significant prayer, this prayer. It's a a short prayer, but if you look at it, you will find his heart. His heart is actually in that prayer, and he's praying for you and for me in that prayer. Although it sounds as if he's praying for himself. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. 
And when he rose up from prayer and he had come to these disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. In another gospel it says that he went back to them three times, he found them sleeping. You remember that? And we look upon them and we think, how is it that you could fall asleep when Jesus asked you to pray? But then we read how Luke writes this down and, you, and I find this little passage in there. He says, he found them sleeping from what? From sorrow. I don't know if you've ever in your life cried so much that you are drained. You're absolutely exhausted. This is where I find him. I don't know. It doesn't say here in Luke the first, the second or the third time. But dear friends, by now, all of the things that happened, the emotional up and downs that these men had to go through. And it came to this part now when they fell asleep because of sorrow. Yet I look at Jesus and I find strength. Because he was in agony and he went through this whole thing and he did not fall asleep. He prayed through. So don't be too hard on these men. It is sorrow. They were crying. Their master, their Lord, the one who they loved was about to die and they saw him a stone's throw off. Most probably they saw him going through this agony, praying with everything in him and they could just cry. And verse 37, And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. A kiss is a sign of affection, isn't it? A kiss is the closest you can get to somebody. This is not a kiss of affection. It's a betrayer's kiss. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who came to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is your hour. You see, they didn't catch him by surprise. He said, This is your hour and the power of darkness. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him up into the high priest's house. But Peter followed in a distance. We're only going to read until there. This is now up to the house of Caiaphas. And I showed you earlier on in the passage that the, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes were there and they were plotting how they could kill him. Three things quickly. Kill Jesus, do it secretly and do it at this feast. And Judas Iscariot fell right into the hands. What a fascinating passage, isn't it? What he had to go through for you and for me, for his disciples, for this world. I remember back 
when the angel appeared to his mother and he said, you will have a son and his name shall be Jesus, called Jesus. For what will he do? He will take away the sins of the world. This is the fruition of all of that. This is the completion of the prophecy. I want to concentrate just for a few minutes on Gethsemane. And I'm just going to touch on two things here. The garden and the cup. I know there's a lot of sermons being preached about the cross and how Jesus died and His resurrection. But let's look at the garden. He says in Luke 22 verse 39, Coming out He went to the Mount of Olives as He was accustomed. And His disciples also followed Him. And when He came to the place, now we know now through other Gospels that place was Gethsemane, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them a stone's throw and he knelt down to pray. I like the word accustomed there because it means that he went there so often. To do what? To pray. John writes about this in John 18 verse 1. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out from with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, it's the same place, which he and his disciples entered. You see these words? You know, when I study the Bible, I want to go and find out what words is he talking about. He's talking about John chapter 17. It's a prayer that Jesus prayed for him, for his disciples and for us. These words, after he's spoken them, he went out over the Brooklyn Kidron, into the garden. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place. Why? Because he was one of them. And he knew about the custom of Jesus to go there. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. He liked to go there to pray. In fact, it says in Luke chapter 21, verse 37, And at daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mount called Olivet. It's the same place. We need to learn something here, friend. We need to learn that in your busyness of day, there need to be a time of the day that we go into our garden. Now, I'm not talking about a physical garden at your house, but you need to go into a place where you spend time with God. You need to go to a place where you can talk to Him. In the daytime, He was so busy, people touched Him. He healed people. He was preaching. He was teaching. It's all the busy things that He did. But at night time, he, he went into that place of rest. It's not only a place of prayer, it's a place of rest. Rest in God, rest in Christ. And I've said it so many times, I find it in, in a lot of places. It's not only one place for me. Sometimes I might be driving in my car and I'm in a place of rest. Why? Because I've met my Sabbath. His name is Jesus Christ. But here we find him going into that place. And it's really interesting. We're talking about a garden and we saw in the human history started with a garden, didn't it? God created this whole earth. And what did he do? Right in the middle of the earth, he created a garden. In Genesis chapter 2, he placed man in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Sin entered into the garden. And we saw that man failed. Did he? It is because that man failed that we've got what we've got today. 
sin entered into the world, a fallen race, a fallen world. And then we read in, in Revelation chapter 21 about the garden city. Have you read that passage yet? I highly recommend it. If your days are becoming so gloom and doom, just open up Revelation chapter 21 and see where you're going. I love that. We see a new heaven and a new earth and we see in this one, God reigns. Man fallen, God reigns. And guess what is right in the middle of those two gardens? The Garden of Gethsemane. Gardens. God loves gardens, doesn't He? He wouldn't have created a garden if He didn't love it. Right in the middle is the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know what happened here? This is where Jesus accepted the cup from the Father's hands. The Garden of Gethsemane. Now let's have a look quickly at uh, John chapter 18 verse 1 when He says, he went over the brook Kidron to get into the garden. This was on the east side of, of Jerusalem. On the east, there was this, this brook running through. The brook Kidron means murky and dark. That's the meaning of the word. And this is a small stream that flew through there, flowed through there. In, in uh, rainy seasons, it was a, a big stream. It was like a, a torrent river running through there. But in the summer months, it dried up, right up. But another interesting thing about this little river here, because it was on the east side, close to the temple, when they had the animal sacrifices, there was so much blood. You imagine everybody brought the animals there. And they killed the animals. What comes out? Blood. And the streams of blood flew right into this river. And the water and the blood will mix and it will become murky and dark. You say, why do you go on so about the river Kidron? You know why? Because I find it fascinating. The parallels from the New Testament to the Old Testament. Because did you know that in Samuel chapter 2, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15, a similar thing happened than what happened with Jesus Christ? To David. Look at this, Second Samuel 15 verse 23. And all the country wept with a loud voice. And all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron. And all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. I find this fascinating. This excites me. You know the Old Testament is the shadow of what's to come. The New Testament is the substance. And here we find King David as a type of Christ on the night that he was going to go into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray for the cup. Let me give you the background around this. At this point in time, David had a son called Absalom. And Absalom was power-driven. He wanted to have his dad's kingdom. He wanted to be the greatest. He wanted to be the king. And you know what this man did? When the people came to sort the king's advice, he said, don't bother the king, come to me. See how subtle he did it? He said, look, when you come, I will listen to you, and then I'll take the, the, the word to the king. 
But he did something really interesting. You know, in uh, chapter 15, verse 4, uh, it's taken Samuel 15, 5, he says, Whenever anyone came near to bow to him, this is to Absalom, what did he do? He would put out his hand, take him and kiss him. Man, this, I'm getting excited as I'm standing here. See how the parallels go. What did Judas Iscariot do? He kissed Jesus. What did Absalom do? The people came up to him and he says, come. And when they bow, he says, no, no, come on. And he would kiss them. Doing what? To gain the favor of the people. And eventually he came to a point where he was going to set himself up as king. He got all the priests, even, even uh, Anitophel. Anitophel was one of the closest men to advisors to David. He, he even asked Anitophel to go and meet him at a place where he was going to be crowned king. And then they came to David and said, this is going to happen. And David knew he had to flee. At that point in time, he was a king without a kingdom. He was a king without a kingdom. At this point in time, Jesus Christ is a king without a kingdom. Jesus Christ went over the murky dark into a dark place, the same as David did years before. And he went over that brook Kidron. I wonder oftentimes if rivers and trees could speak. I'm not crazy. Just hang in there. I want to go and sit next to that brook Kidron and I want to ask him a few questions. And I want to say, that day when David and the people walked over here, how did you, can you tell me about that? The agony on David's face when he walked over the brook Kidron into the garden, through the garden of Gethsemane, to the wilderness. Oh brook, can you tell me the experience, can you, can you just, somehow explain to me the emotional state. Then I want to fast forward to the day when Jesus Christ had to cross into Gethsemane to pray for me and sit there and say just somehow the emotion on the disciples' faces as they walked with him over the brook Kidron, knowing that he was going to die. You see, when David went over there, he thought he was going to die. When Jesus went over there, he knew he was going to die. There's a difference. See how deep the Word of God is? And then some people say it's an old, dusty, moldy book. They ain't know what they're talking about. But you see, he went into Gethsemane. Let's talk more about this garden. It is called Olive Press. That's what it's called. That's what it means. An Olive Press. And you know what is an olive press? It takes all the olives from the trees, it puts it in the press, and then it, pressure is applied. It's applied so hard to these little fruits, these olives, that the skin breaks. And what comes out? Olives come, olive oil comes out. The oil, the juice comes out. You see, dear friends, he comes in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, and being in agony, this is Jesus, he prayed more earnestly, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Can you see how my Lord has been crushed with the weight of the cup of trembling of your and my sin? At a place called Olive Press, Gethsemane, it's the same thing. No wonder Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21, he says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, 
that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And there's no better scripture verse to show this pressure upon Jesus than His prayer that He prayed. No other scripture shows it to me more than in His own words when He says, Father, if it is Your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. The olive oil, the press. You see, this prayer is not a prayer for him, it's a prayer for us. He says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup. He didn't say, it's my will that you take this cup away, if it's your will. I can see at this point in time where this pressure is so much on him, in the olive press, now, and this, is, this can happen. Sweat can actually become like drops of blood. It's medically shown that it can happen. Of pure, it's the, 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 the pressure that there's something in your sweat drops that can burst a small vessel and drops can come out. It can actually happen. But you know what? I'm not looking at the physical. I look at the spiritual that he went through. He carried the burden of this world upon his shoulders. When he went into the garden, it says that he took his disciples with him. But I also read about Peter, James and John. And I want to show you something interesting here about Peter, James and John. And it's all connected to this garden and Jesus. He says in Mark chapter 14, when we read about it, verse 32, he says, Then they came to the place which is now named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. Now, all of his disciples followed him. But when he came to one part of the garden, he, he said to them, sit. And he took with him Peter, James and John, and he began to be troubled distressedly. So, just imagine this. All of the disciples are sitting a little bit further off. Peter, James and John goes with him further in, and then a stone's throw further is Jesus. You say, what is so significant about Peter, James and John? Well, if you study the Word of God and you go back and you will find some things which is really interesting, like these three places, that it's only three places mentioned that he took the three of them with him. The first one was at Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8 verse 41. You remember when she died? The little girl? The crowds were there. They called Jesus in and what did he do? He chased them all out of the room. And who was with him in the room? Peter, James and John. The second place where they took them was the Mount of Transfiguration. you remember that? There was only Peter, James and John at the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9 verse 28. Not all the other disciples. And what happened there? He took them with him and before their eyes he changed. He was transfigured figured into a shining, the, the, the glory of God just shone from the inside out and with him was the two, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And where's the third place that these three with him? At Gethsemane. It's only those three places that I read that he'd read about Peter, James and John. Peter, James and John. Peter, James and John. At Jairus' daughter, at the Mount of Transfiguration and at Gethsemane. You say, so what is so significant about that? Well, at the first one, dear friends, we see that Jesus is victorious over death. What did he do? He raised the little girl from the dead. Is that victorious? Yes. 
What happened at the second one? We see that Jesus is glorified through death. He's glorified through death. What's going to happen when he dies? He's going to be glorified. John chapter 17, he says, Now, Father, glorify me as I was glorified before. And what is this one here? Gethsemane. At Gethsemane, we see that Jesus is surrendered unto death. You think that's significant? Of course it is. Because, dear friend, as you and I sit here today, we know that we serve a Savior who is victorious over death, who is glorified through death, and who has surrendered to death to carry our burdens upon Him. Now let me finish this morning with the cup. The cup. We talked about the garden. Did you find the garden interesting? Now let's talk about the cup. He says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. What is this cup? Have you thought about it? I want you to concentrate this morning because this applies to you and to me in this room. We read about this cup in Psalm 75 verse 8. He says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full, fully mixed, and it pours it out. Now I want you to concentrate. Surely its dregs shall be all the wicked of the earth, drain and drink down. It talks about a cup which the dregs shall be wicked on the earth. Now look at uh, Isaiah 51 verse 17. He says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of His fury. The cup of His fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Jesus says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away. He's talking about the cup of the Lord, which is the cup of fury. The Lord's fury. God's fury. God's trembling is in this cup. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 22. Thus says your Lord, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of His people. You see, He pleads the cause of His people. See, I've taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury you shall no longer drink. So what is this cup? It is the fury of God against sin. You see, we can't escape this cup if we're not in Christ. He says there is a cup. Jesus says, Father, take this cup away from me in the garden of Gethsemane. It was written in Isaiah chapter 51 verse 22 where he says, I will take this cup out of your hand. You see, it was prophesied that what he was going to do in the garden of Gethsemane to take this cup out of the hand of God. Otherwise, listen to me, otherwise you and I will have to drink of that cup of the fury of God. I don't want to hurry this on because this is serious. If Christ don't drink this cup on your behalf, you have to drink it. You have to drink and it's called the cup of the fury. Do you want to fall into the hands of a living God? 
You won't escape this cup. It is your cup to drink. Your name is on that cup. Everyone's name is on that cup. You say, but I will escape it. You know, I'm going to be a good person. Jeremiah 25, don't think so. Jeremiah said something else. He prophesied in 25.15. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hands and cause all the nations to whom I sent you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord has sent me. You shall not and you cannot and you will not and whatever tense or word I can throw into this, you and I will not be able to escape this cup except Let me reserve that word except for a little bit later on. Verse 26, All the kings of the north, this is Jeremiah 25, 26, far and near, one after with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are on the face of the earth, also the king of Sesha shall drink after them. Therefore you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit, fall and rise no more, because of the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall certainly drink. Is this serious or what? Is this a nice cup? Is this a cup that you want to drink? Is this something you look forward to, to drink the cup of the Lord? When he uses words like you shall vomit, you shall be drunk, you shall rise no more. We're living in a society where all the young people and everybody want to rise. Oh, I want to rise and arrive and make a name. Yet, he says, you, you shall rise no more. Why? Because the sword I will send among you. Now, when Jesus prays the Spirit about the cup, do you want to really drink that cup? He says, you shall certainly drink it. It's either you drink it or somebody else drinks it. Can you see now how important this prayer is in the garden? When Jesus Christ is when He says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Can you see that Jesus saw the terribleness of the cup of fury and trembling of God, that he prayed this prayer, that he prayed it so much that his sweat became like blood, that he was in the oil press, walking over the murky river into this oil press, for you and for me, that he prayed this prayer. And here is everything evidenced in the Word of God that you shall certainly, certainly drink it. You see, Romans chapter 6 verse 23 is for the wages of sin is death. <laughs> what does the word but mean? Sharp contrast. But the gift of God is eternal life. In whom? The one who drinks the cup on your behalf. Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews 5, 7, who in the days of his flesh 
when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Here we find our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and it's written from the Hebrew writer. He says, he was able to save him from death. God was able to save Jesus from death, but he didn't allow it. Why? Because if he allowed it, you had to drink from that cup of wrath. Let's preach the word and forget about the world because this is life-giving and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was, was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, which he suffered, and having been perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Can you now understand the prayer? You know, we've got so many prayers of Jesus in the Word and they're all fantastic prayers. But there's one prayer that to me stands out above them all and it's this prayer. My most favorite prayer of Jesus Christ is this prayer. This is personal to me. He says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours. Now, did the Father take the cup away from him? No, he didn't. He drank that cup. He took our cup on him. And, and let me finish with this. Romans chapter 5 verse 6. He says, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know how I know that he drank that cup for us? He died for the ungodly. Now think in your mind, ungodly, okay? Then he says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. What is the righteous man? He's a good man. He's doing everything right, isn't it? Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would die, dare to die. You know, if somebody dies for somebody who's a good man, you might say, well, I'll dare to do that. A righteous man, yes, perhaps one will do that. But look at this, he says, but God demonstrated his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I go back to that prayer in the garden. He says, this cup. He says, Father, this cup of wrath, this cup of fury, not for the righteous, not for the good, for the sinner. Can you see how much this prayer is powerful? You could have said, yes, I, I, I can understand if this cup was for a righteous man. I can understand if it was for a good man. But for a sinner... Shall I start naming few people who are sinners that we despise of? For a murderer? For a murderer? For a homosexual? For a pedophile? Those are really bad ones and we don't want to be associated with those people. But he did it for them as well. So that when they turn around and say, Father, I don't want to drink of that cup of wrath, you know what's going to happen? He drank it on their behalf. Christ died for us. Much more than. Now, I love this. That's why I've highlighted it in, in a different color. I, I think about this and I think, how can there any, be anything much more than than him dying for sinners. He says, listen to this, much more, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what? From the wrath through him. Why? Because he drank the cup of wrath. He 
You see this? Because He died for us, much more, now having been justified, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. We shall be saved from this cup which I've showed you. I want to ask you this morning, are you saved from that cup? Have you come to a point in your life where you say, Father, I do not want to drink of that cup, and it can happen like that, and you don't have an opportunity to drink from that cup of Christ, or or Christ didn't drink it on your behalf. You have to accept, you have to be born again. Listen to me, you have to be saved. You have to come to Christ. Otherwise, as Jeremiah said, you will drink of the cup of the wrath of God. For even when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved from, by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. 